This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week, our dinosaur of the day is Platiosaurus, and we have a bunch of dinosaur news. But first, we want to give a big thank you to some of our Stegosaurus patrons. Specifically this week, we'd like to thank Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, Lindsay Burns, and Janice. Yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate all of your support and everything you do, and and you really help us keep the show going, and we appreciate all of our patrons. So if you want to join this amazing group of people, then check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. We offer a number of rewards that hopefully you find appealing. Indeed. (laughs) First in the news, we've got a new dinosaur. (laughs) Yeah. This is a hadrosaur from China, and this paper was written by Jialiang Zhang and others. It's named Leiangosaurus, young eye, and it's closely related to Edmontosaurus. You're probably familiar with that pretty massive hadrosaur from North America. And Leiangosaurus is named after Leiang, which is the city it was found in. Maybe it's Leiang. I'm not sure. It's in northeast China. And the species name, Young Eye, is, quote, in commemoration of the 120th anniversary of Dr. Chung Chien Young's birth. And Dr. Young is the pioneer of vertebrate paleontological research in Liang and who has discovered many dinosaurs at this locality, end quote. That's nice. So I guess they timed this paper to release on the 120th anniversary Why not? of his if birth. it's close enough. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Or maybe it was just close enough to say that it was in commemoration of it without it being actually on the day. It's not the first paper to do that. Of an actual birthday? I don't oh, remember that. A, oh, of a birth. You're right, you're right. But I, I remember commemorations of other things. Yes. With this discovery, they actually found fossils from five individuals. But despite that, it's actually very few pieces, very few individual fossils. So they're basically different parts of the skull, mostly dental batteries, it (laughs) looks like, which is that part of the jaw that has all the teeth sticking out of it. And there are hundreds of teeth in these, as you would expect, because it's a hadrosaur, so they were grinding up all their food. They varied quite a bit in size, so it looks like there were probably some juveniles and maybe adults But they don't know much about the actual maximum size of it because since all they found was skull remains, basically, 
it's not a very good indicator of the size of the animal. You want to find at least a leg bone, if not an arm bone. So hopefully they can find some more. Since they found five individuals, you'd hope that there might be some more bones around in that quarry. And we can learn a little bit more about it other than it looks like it's probably like Edmontosaurus. <laughs> and the other new dinosaur I want to talk about isn't really new. It's kind of newish. <laughs> it was found in Patagonia in Argentina last year. And I don't think we talked about it at the time, but it's named Via Venator Exoni. And via comes from road, and venator obviously is hunter, as is in many dinosaur names. So they translate it to hunter of the road, which is a pretty weird name. And then Exxon I is from Exxon Mobil, who funded the field work. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah, it's not as good as like a significant paleontologist's birthday, but you know, good enough. It's an abelosaurid, and they found the skull, vertebrae, ribs, gastralia, which are kind of like ribs that float below the dinosaur's rib cage. So it like protects their stomach, basically, as well as some teeth that have chisel-shaped denticles, in case you're a denticle enthusiast. And again, those are like the serrations on the teeth. And they found the brain case, which is pretty cool. Like I said, I'm not sure if we talked about this last year, when the original Discovery paper came out, but this is a paper where they really went more in depth into the anatomy. And both of these Discovery papers were in an article by Leonardo Filippi and others. And based on this new analysis, they can see that it's very similar to Carnotaurus, not too surprising being a, a Belosaurid from Argentina, since that's also where Carnotaurus is from. Although Via Venator is older at about 85 million years ago, versus 70 million years ago for the Carnotaurus finds. So 15 million years. It really isn't that long in the scope of dinosaurs, but pretty massive amount of time yep. <laughs> for everything else. <laughs> they think it's similar in size to Carnotaurus, and they didn't find a horn on its frontals, which is kind of the forehead, and that's where Carnotaurus has its horns. So Basically, the way I'm imagining this dinosaur is a Carnotaurus without horns. Still the tiny little wimpy arms. They didn't find the arms, unfortunately. So you can't Aww. tell if it had those goofy little tiny arms with the hands. <laughs> <laughs> but hopefully they find more. Next, a new teratophonius specimen was airlifted to the Natural History Museum of Utah in Salt Lake City last week. And it was airlifted in pieces. The largest one weighed almost a ton, which is pretty cool yeah so dr alan titus found the fossils about two years ago in utah's grand staircase escalante national monument um and he found what turned out to be about an 80 percent complete teratophonius which is a type of tyrannosaur at least they think it's a teratophonius but it could be a new kind of tyrannosaur and they'll know more once after they've studied it a bit it was a mostly articulated skeleton with the full skull so only the back part of the tail was missing and a few toes, and they're not sure yet if they have the arms. And it's the most complete tyrannosaur found so far in the southwest of America, and it may have been so well preserved due to a flood. It's going to take a few years to prepare the specimen, but if it is a teratophonius, it lived a few million years before T-Rex. 
And the skeleton they found is of a juvenile, maybe three quarters grown. So it was about 17 to 20 feet or five to six meters long and 12 feet or 3.6 meters tall. And it weighed around 2,000 pounds or 1,000 kilograms. If it is teratophonius, the Natural History Museum of Utah has adult and young teratophonius specimens. So then this new specimen could give more information about the genus, especially how it grew. Nice. Teratophonius is kind of fun to say. Yeah. And everyone loves a tyrannosaur. It's got a nice ring to it. Mm-hmm. The teratophonius tyrannosaur. That's <laughs> true. Next up is an article about dinosaurs pooping. It <laughs> 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 was written by Christopher Dowdy. And yeah, this just keeps coming up. Oh, my talk about dinosaur poop. Specifically, they're talking about herbivores, quote unquote, dispersing nutrients, <laughs> which sounds a lot. It's classier. a nice way of putting it, yeah. Yeah. And really, they are actually talking about dispersing nutrients because there's apparently been a long-standing theory that large herbivores spread nutrients around when they eat and then they walk around and they poop out those plants, which makes sense. But really, the question is, do large herbivores do that any more than small herbivores? Like if you just have a land that's covered in mice and bats and other small oh i see animals do they distribute nutrients as well as something like a sauropod or an elephant so they decided to test this theory with statistics and what they have as their data source is the used plant nutrient data that's collected from coal deposits which are essentially old forests so what they ended up comparing were two periods they had coal deposits from the Pennsylvanian, which is in the Carboniferous and ended about 50 million years before the Mesozoic and therefore a little more than that, maybe 60, 70 million years before the first dinosaurs. And back in the Pennsylvanian, there were no four-legged herbivores anywhere, which is pretty crazy to think about. That is. So I guess it's just you have the first things coming out on land and everything starts out bipedal. And it takes a while before anything evolves four legs and starts eating plants. And as expected, they saw less well-distributed nutrients from the Permian based on these coal mines. Then flashing forward to the Cretaceous, I'm not really sure why they didn't compare anything in the Triassic or Jurassic. Maybe it was just a scope problem. And I guess if you're going to compare the largest dinosaurs, you want to go to the Cretaceous because all of the Cretaceous had sauropods. Mm -hmm. And you can't get any bigger land herbivores than sauropods, so I guess that makes sense. And lining up with their original hypothesis, they found that the nutrients were more evenly spread during the Cretaceous. I was a little bit skeptical about this, so I looked into what exactly they measured, and they looked at what they called plant-important rock-derived nutrients, which... (laughs) were things like calcium, magnesium, potassium, phosphorus, and sulfur. And the reason they said that they're rock-derived nutrients is the number one nutrient that plants need is nitrogen, you may be familiar with. But a lot of the nitrogen that plants get comes from the air and other sources, so it's not really a useful indicator for how well animals are distributing nutrients. On top of that... They brought in aluminum as a sort of baseline, and they found that the aluminum didn't change between the Pennsylvanian and the Cretaceous. 
in terms of concentration or spread. So they think that since aluminum isn't used by plants and animals, it wasn't being selected for by these mega herbivorous dinosaurs. Interestingly, since spreading out these nutrients makes it easier for plants to grow, which in turn grows more sauropods and so on and so forth, Dowdy told fizz.org, quote, life makes the planet easier for more life, end quote. Good quote. <laughs> I think that's pretty clever because it's kind of like they're composting and fertilizing the planet for themselves, kind of like the family of sauropods on Good Dinosaur, <laughs> if you think about it. <laughs> yeah, in a way. They didn't show them fertilizing their crops. It was implied. I guess it was. So maybe they were unintentionally acting like the good dinosaur. <laughs> I didn't really love the conclusions of this paper because the data is really messy. And I guess it makes sense because the Pennsylvanian coal deposits are in a totally different place and a different concentration than the ones from the Cretaceous. And potassium actually goes the wrong way. Potassium concentrations is going down when everything else was going up which seems to run counter to their argument. And since they were only looking at five elements, one of them is going the wrong way. Doesn't really strike a lot of confidence in the theory. But it was published in Nature, which is a pretty prestigious journal. So hopefully the peer review process means that it's scientifically rigorous and we can believe that sauropods helped spread nutrients all across the land. <laughs> I think people have thought that for a while. It's yeah. Just a proven. Exactly. And I think this is a long way from proving it. It's just a little bit of evidence. The author did talk a little bit about why he thinks mega herbivorous animals have a bigger impact than small ones. And it's all about how far they move in a day. So if you think about a small animal like a squirrel or something, they don't really move around that much around a city or a forest in a day, whereas something like an elephant or a herd of bison or something really cover a lot of ground and therefore spread nutrients a lot farther. And they also mentioned that the lack of large wild herbivores today, really being the lowest it's been in a very long time, might mean that we're losing something in regards to how our nutrients are distributed around the planet. It's an interesting thought. Next, we have a few quick National Fossil Day stories, just following up a couple weeks late. But anyway, <laughs> first, Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs posted about creating these Fossil Day outreach materials for SVP. They're a set of trading cards that show six dinosaurs discovered at Utah's Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. Bringing that up again. And so the cards included Utahceratops, Diabloceratops, Lythronax, Teratophonius, Gryposaurus, and Nasuceratops. And they're really colorful and graphic and fun, and I enjoyed looking at them. Uh, we also found the National Fossil Day song, which we mentioned last week, and it's this cute two-minute guitar song. We'll post a link so you can listen for yourself. We've also got another update on the Triceratops found in Thornton, Colorado, that's now on display at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. That Triceratops now has a name, Tiny. <laughs> the Brantner Elementary School students, which are from a nearby school were allowed to choose the name and then they announced it on National Fossil Day. So now you can go see Tiny the Triceratops. Cool. Who is probably quite large. Yeah. <laughs> Next, the Jurassic Dinosaur Museum Project, which 
we've talked about before, it was going to cost 80 million pounds to create, has been canceled, uh, according to the BBC. It was going to be built in Dorset, and it was led by science writer Michael Hanlon. Oh, no, that's Jurassica. Yeah. He unfortunately passed away last year, and we we talked about that. So now the project's going to be part of a biodiversity project and renamed The Journey. Boo. It it could still be cool. It's going to have this uh, mass extinction memorial observatory. And they're expecting 325,000 visitors a year. That's decent. The reason is that it was really hard to raise enough money. So merging these two projects was a way to salvage as much as possible. So I'd say better than nothing. I guess. They were talking about having like animatronic dinosaurs. And they're also going to have like that mesozoic. Yeah, exactly. With like reptiles swimming in it and stuff. But if you can't get the money. Uh, That's disappointing. At least there's something. I guess. It's just another one of those biospheres now. Yeah, I I think it could still be cool. I guess. (laughs) I'm sad. Well, on a happier note, Dinosaurs in the Wild is now in Manchester in the UK. And we've talked about Dinosaurs in the Wild before. It's this attraction where you can travel back in time to the Cretaceous. and You have this immersive experience that lasts about 70 minutes and sounds really amazing. And I really hope it comes to the United States at some point. (laughs) But who knows? It sounds like it's got a few more stops in the UK. So if you're in the area, let us know because all the pictures and everything I've read online, it sounds really awesome. And speaking of dinosaur exhibits, thanks to Chris who shared a Twitter review of the Dinosaurs of China exhibit, which is currently on display at Wallaton Hall near Nottingham in the UK. And Chris also shared some amazing images with us, and we'll post a few on our site so you can see them if you're interested. And we're also going to read a little bit of his review here, but we have his full review on our site, which has a lot more details in it. So Chris visited back in August with his family, including his four-year-old daughter and his baby. And he said, quote, Wallaton Hall is a well-known local venue, having first opened as a museum in 1926. The Nottingham Natural History Museum claims an archive of 750,000 specimens, so exhibiting dinosaurs here seemed like a natural choice. The preservation of the specimens was astounding. Erupting volcanoes had preserved an entire ecosystem under ash deposits, like a prehistoric Pompeii. It would have been interesting to see examples of the flora, meaning plants, too, but no mention was made as to whether such specimens survived. The central exhibit is a magnificently displayed Mementosaurus from Sichuan province in central China. The sauropod from the late Jurassic, 160 million years ago, had an extremely long neck reaching up to 12 meters in length. The specimen on display is 23 meters long, and so the skeleton has been constructed in a 13 and a half meter tall rearing posture so that it could fit inside the Great Hall at Wallaton, making it the tallest dinosaur ever displayed in the UK. And 13 and a half meters is about 44 feet, so that is pretty tall. Yes. Alongside this central exhibit is the smaller prosauropod Lufengosaurus, early Jurassic, 200 million years ago, and Synraptor, late Jurassic, the latter displayed as if it were pursuing the rearing Mementosaurus. Also on display were Protoceratops from the late Cretaceous, Guanlong from the late Jurassic, which is a small two-meter-long ancestor of T-Rex with a large, delicate, ornamental head crest, and one, he wrote, for Garrett. (laughs) (laughs) 
Pinacosaurus, and Ankylosaur from the late Cretaceous. This last specimen is displayed as it was preserved in a crouching position, probably sheltering from the sandstorm that engulfed it. Oh. <laughs> yeah. He also said that there's a bird gallery with Oviraptor, Gigantoraptor, and others, and another exhibit called Feathered Flyers with the Microraptor holotype, Yichi, and other dinosaurs and pterosaurs. And then there's also several crafts for kids, a good gift shop. And he said when he asked his daughter what her favorite thing about the visit was, without hesitation, she said, the ice cream. Nice. (laughs) And if you're going to go, he recommends taking about two hours to go through the whole thing. So if you're near Nottingham in the UK, you have a little bit more time to see it. This exhibit runs until October 29th. You should hurry up and go. (laughs) Yeah, that's not much time. Speaking of museums, the Royal Ontario Museum is looking for donations to help them prepare Zool, which is the new ankylosaur named earlier this year. And they're looking for help so that they can clean Zool's bones and create 3D models of the tail club. So you can donate $40 for an e-card with a custom drawing of Zool and recognition on the website, or $60 for all of that and a live chat with Dr. David Evans, and we'll post a link on our site. In Atlanta, Georgia, a family in Candler Park had their large metal dinosaur sculpture stolen from their yard. No. Yeah, so the dinosaur's name is Rusty. It was part of their Halloween decorations, and the family says they use him for lots of decorations. He wears a Santa hat around Christmas. The family actually made the dinosaur themselves because their son wanted something big and cool for their (laughs) yard for his sixth birthday. This is four years ago. Rusty's about three feet tall and four to five feet long, and the family's hoping he'll be returned soon. That's annoying. It is. I was kind of thinking that with those Home Depot dinosaur skeletons, because the really big ones were three or four hundred dollars, and that would be frustrating. That would be. And last in the news, thanks to Chris who shared this one with us via Facebook, there's a video called The Best Balloon Animal Ever, which shares the work of balloon artist Mark Verge, and Mark says that he likes to make big sculptures, and he's made costumes and a pirate ship out of balloons. But the coolest thing he said he was made is a T-Rex that was 12 feet tall, 43 feet long, and he said took about 700 balloons to make. Jeez. (laughs) Yeah. And because balloons lose their air, he had to do it very quickly, so he spent 40 hours, three days creating this. And he started with the vertebrae. There's a pretty cool time lapse in this video. And he said that the ribs were pretty challenging because they were large and required multiple balloons. And he used lamp stands to help hold up the dinosaur, which allows him to easily pose it. And he said he likes to make make his sculptures as accurate as possible, like what you'd see in a museum. (laughs) So the head was hard for him to make because he's got the fenestra, the holes, too. Oh, jeez. It's really impressive. That's cool. Yeah. We've seen a couple huge T-Rex balloon animals. Mm-hmm. We saw one in New Jersey, and we also saw one in Singapore, I think. We didn't see the one in Singapore. We just saw pictures of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think it was there right after we left. Mm-hmm. But I can barely make a dog balloon animal. So <laughs> from one balloon? From one balloon, yeah. I <laughs> can only imagine. Plus the time crunch. Don't want the balloons to lose <laughs> air. Yeah. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. 
Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. (laughs) Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Pladiosaurus, which was a request from Ian and Cole via Patreon and Dinosaur4602 via YouTube. So popular dinosaur. Thanks, everyone. The name means broad lizard, though sometimes that's translated as flat lizard. (laughs) (laughs) Reminds me of flathead, little foot and land before time. But anyway, (laughs) they're not the same dinosaur. It was a basal sauropodomorph that lived in the late Triassic in what is now central and northern Europe. And there's two species. There's Pladiosaurus englehartii, which is the type species, and Pladiosaurus gracilis, though there used to be more species named. Johann Friedrich Engelhart found Pladiosaurus in 1834, so of course there's a lot of history there. And Engelhart was a physician. He found vertebrae and leg bones at Haraldsburg near Nuremberg, Germany, and was described in 1837 by Hermann von Mayer. Pladiosaurus was the fifth dinosaur named that's still considered to be valid. Hmm. It was described before Sir Richard Owen named Dinosauria in 1842, but at the time it wasn't well known enough, and it was too difficult to determine if it was an actual dinosaur, so it wasn't included in the genera that defined the group. There were only three genera in that group at the time. It was Megalosaurus, Iguanodon, and Hylaeosaurus. But since that time, more than 100 skeletons have been found. Yeah, they find them all the time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, Pladiosaurus fossils have been found in more than 50 localities in Germany, Switzerland, and France. Three locations in particular had a large number of specimens. There's Halbertstadt in Saxony-Anhalt, Germany, Trossingen in Baden-Württemberg, Germany, and Frick in Switzerland. In the 1910s to 1930s, about 40 to 50 Pladiosaurus skeletons were found in a clay pit in Saxony-Anhalt. Some of them were assigned to Pladiosaurus longiceps, which is a species that Otto Jekyll described in 1914, but is now considered to be a junior synonym to Pladiosaurus engelharti. 
Most of this ended up at the Museum for Naturkunde in Berlin, but unfortunately a lot of it was destroyed in World War II. Oh. Trossigen in the Black Forest in Germany, the Swabia region, had multiple excavations between 1911 and 1932, led by Eberhard Frost and Friedrich von Huhn, and then in 1932, Reinhold Seemann found 35 complete or partially complete platyosaur skeletons and fragments from more than 70 individuals. Because so many platyosaurus fossils were found there, Friedrich August von Kenstend nicknamed platyosaurus Schwabischer Lindwurm, the Swabian Lindworm or Swabian Dragon, after a type of serpentine dragon. Unfortunately, many of those fossils were destroyed in 1944 when... Stuttgart was burned after an Allied bombing raid. But Rainer Schultz, curator of the State Museum of Natural History Stuttgart, which was built after, found in a 2011 study that, quote, the scientifically most valuable material is still available, end quote. So that's, that's good. good. Yeah. yeah, way too many scientific things, as well as people, were just annihilated during World War II with all these bombing raids. It's really mm -hmm. a shame. It is. And then in 1976, Platyosaurus skeletons were found in a clay pit in Tonwerk, Kettler, AG, and Frick, Switzerland. And excuse my pronunciations. Platyosaurus is the also the first dinosaur found in Norway. In 2006, workers of an oil platform were drilling through sandstone and found a fossil that they thought was plant material. The drill core with the fossil was over 7,400 feet or 2,200 meters below the seafloor. And Martin Sander and Nicole Klein analyzed it and found that it was a bone that belonged to Platyosaurus. Yeah, that was my fun fact as the deepest dinosaur discovery mm -hmm. ever. Didn't realize it was also the first one found in Norway. Yeah. <laughs> Platyosaurus has also been found in Greenland in the Fleming Fjord Formation. Ooh, alliterative. The etymology of Platyosaurus isn't that clear, as I said, flathead or broadhead. <laughs> <laughs> the original description actually has no information, and authors have different interpretations. So, for example, in 1846, Hans Bruno Geinitz said it meant broad. Also in 1846, Agassiz said it was ancient Greek for paddle or rudder, which translates to pala in Latin, which means spade. And so he renamed the genus Platysaurus, probably from Greek, which means broad or flat, and then created this invalid junior synonym. And later authors refer to this and the secondary meaning of flat, so the name is often translated as flat lizard. Supposedly, this refers to its flat bones, like its flattened teeth, but its teeth and other flat bones, like pubic bones and some skull elements, were not found at the time that Palladiosaurus was described. So, mystery, I guess. In 1855, von Meyer published a detailed description with illustrations, but didn't include any information on the etymology, he did refer to its large size and massive limbs and compared Platyosaurus to large modern mammals, but didn't describe anything that fit the words flat or shaped like an oar. <laughs> As you can imagine, there's been a lot of changes with how Platyosaurus species have been classified, so Peter Galton showed that all skull material from the three major Platyosaurus localities were part of the same species. Marcus Moser did an extensive study in 2003 of platyosaurid material from Germany and Switzerland and found Celosaurus to be the same as Platyosaurus, but didn't discuss if Celosaurus gracilis, which is now considered Platyosaurus gracilis, and Platyosaurus anglehartii were the same species. 
Adam Yates later said that Platysaurus gracilis might be a metataxon, which means there's no evidence that the material assigned to it belongs to one species or several species, because the holotype of Platysaurus gracilis doesn't have a skull, and other specimens with skulls are not similar enough to be sure that it belongs to the same taxon. Hmm. So there may be more Platysaurus species. Some scientists think there are more than two Platysaurus species, and that would include Platysaurus Erlenbergensis, but not everyone agrees, and this doesn't take into account Moser's work. Galton did a lot of work in reducing the number of Platysaurus species, though. He said that Platysaurus trussigensis, Platysaurus frasianus, and Platysaurus integer were the same as Platysaurus longiceps. However, Marcus Moser found that Platysaurus longiceps was a junior synonym of Platysaurus engelharti, and that other species in other genera also belong to Platysaurus engelharti, including Dimodosaurus polygniensis, Gresliosaurus robustus, Gresliosaurus torgeri, Pachysaurus ajax, Pachysaurus giganteus, Pachysaurus magnus, and Pachysaurus vitzelianus. So now we're just down to the two Platysaurus species. <laughs> <laughs> Platysaurus engelharti has a lectotype that was named in 2003 by Marcus Moser of a partial sacrum that was probably from near Haroldsburg. The type specimen of Platysaurus gracilis is incomplete, and it's kept at the Staatliches Museum für Naturkunde in Stuttgart, Germany. Platysaurus is part of the family Platysauridae, which was named by Marsh in 1895. It was a bipedal herbivore. Scientists have hypothesized many ways that Platysaurus would have stood. Von Huhn thought that they were bipedal. Jekyll thought they were quadrupedal and sprawled like lizards, though later on he thought that they could hop like kangaroos. Hmm. And uh, German zoologist Gustav Tornier made fun of him for it. And Frost thought that they had a reptile-like posture. Then later, scientists thought that they were quadrupedal and they moved slowly and then bipedal when they wanted to move quickly. And Moser showed that its tail was straight. In 2007, Bonin and Center did a study that showed that Platysaurus could not pronate its hands, which means they couldn't face the hand downwards so that they could walk on them. So that would have made them bipedal only. Also, their hind limbs were about twice as long as their forelimbs. Platysaurus probably walked on their toes and they increased their speeds with higher stride frequencies. Platysaurus had muscles that could not provide a spring, meaning one hind foot had to touch the ground at all times. Basically, it would, could only speed walk. <laughs> Scientists had been able to reconstruct what its rib cage looked like when inhaling and exhaling, since ribs were connected to the dorsal vertebrae with two joints and acted like a hinge joint, and they found that it was similar to birds, so Platysaurus probably had an avian-style flow-through lung this bird-like respiratory system. They also had air sacs, similar to modern birds. Because birds evolved from theropods and not sauropods, this means either the avian respiratory system evolved twice in sauropodomorphs and theropods, or that this respiratory system evolved before dinosaurs split into this theropod and sauropodomorph groups. Platysaurus came in all different sizes. So you can imagine over 100 specimens. So adults could be between 16 and 33 feet, or 4.8 to 10 meters long, and weigh between 1,300 to 8,800 pounds, or 600 to 4,000 kilograms. That's a big range, and big overall. Oh, yeah. Platysaurus gracilis, which, again, used to be called Celosaurus gracilis, was a little bit smaller, about 13 to 16 feet, or 4 to 5 meters long. Platysaurus grew rapidly as a juvenile, but then they had this varied growth rate and grew to different sizes. This is probably based on food availability. So, for example, 
Some fully grown platysaurus were only 16 feet, 4.8 meters long, while others were 33 feet or 10 meters long. That really makes me think subspecies too, though. Yeah. <laughs> if not just different species or genus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could be. Sander and Klein found that some platysaurus were fully grown by age 12, but then others grew slowly until age 20, and at least one was growing rapidly at age 18. Hmm. The oldest platysaurus found was 27 years old, and it was still growing. But most platysaurus found were between 12 and 20 years old. And the youngest platysaurus found so far was 10 years old. Platysaurus may have lived a lot longer than 20 years, since many of the fossils found were of platysaurus that died in accidents. In the late Triassic, Platysaurus was one of the main herbivorous dinosaurs in Europe, so it would have been one of the largest land animals at the time, and it was probably common prey for early theropods as well as archosaurs. Platysaurus had a small skull and a long, flexible neck. The skull was narrow and long and had large eye sockets, and they had sclerotic rings in the eyes. So Platysaurus may have been cathomeral, which means they would have been active throughout the day and night. Their eyes were directed to the sides, so they had this all-around vision and could watch out for predators, and they had a long muscular tail and short arms, especially compared to other sauropodomorphs. They had a large thumb claw in each hand, which may have been used for defense or for getting food, and Platysaurus was probably herbivorous. They had broad leaf-shaped teeth and a skull that could have a strong bite, which would have been good for slicing and mashing plants. And they also had a large digestive system, so they could have eaten tougher plants. No gastroliths have been found with platysaurus so far, so they probably didn't need them to help them digest. And in 2016, a team of researchers in the UK, led by David Button, created these 3D computer models of the skulls of Platysaurus and Camarasaurus to study the evolution of sauropods and their ancestors and how they ate vegetation. And they found that Camarasaurus had a stronger bite force than Platysaurus, as well as a different shape in the lower jaw. But Platysaurus could chew faster than Camarasaurus. It had a longer tooth row, possibly because it was at least partially omnivorous, like other sauropodomorphs, and being able to close their jaws faster would help them with prey. Platysaurus also had heterodont teeth, which means different types of teeth, and that shows that it probably ate different types of material, which may have included small animals. Why not? Yeah, why not? The three main sites where Platysaurus was found are nearly monospecific assemblages, which means that they basically only contain one species, though theropod teeth have been found there and some remains of an early turtle. And they also have only found adults or subadults. Scientists have had different ideas about how Platysaurus wound up in Trocyon. Frost thought that it was because they waded too deep into mud. Jagel thought that they waded into swamps and drowned. Von Heun thought that the weakest ones, mostly subadults, died in the desert and then sank in the mud of water holes. <laughs> and Seaman thought that Platysaurus herds went to large water holes and some got pushed in and got stuck and died. Good imaginations. A yeah. whole wide variety of hypotheses there. Definitely. It's not known for sure, though, whether Platysaurus lived in herds. And then later, David Weishempel suggested that a Platysaurus herd, even though we're not sure if they lived in herds, may have died in a mudflow, and that Platysaurus was common at this time, which is why they were the only species in that locality. Another scientist, Reber, said that he thought Platysaurus died of thirst or starvation, and then was concentrated by mudflows. But then, a reassessment by Martin Sander of the University of Bonn, Germany, found that Frost's idea of mud miring was true. 
animals heavy enough sank in the mud, similar to the La Brea tar pits, and this explains why their bones weren't transported after they died, why juveniles and other animals didn't sink in with them and were not preserved, and why scavenging theropods didn't get stuck there because they were probably lighter and had larger feet proportionally. There's also no indication of herding or of a catastrophic burial. Interesting. Platiosaurus was in Disney's 1940 Fantasia movie as part of the History of Life on Earth segment set to Igor Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring, and it shows a herd of Platiosaurus briefly digging for clams, though they wouldn't have done that in real life, but <laughs> cool. Well, maybe, given that new research about eating animals for extra calcium. Maybe. I don't know if clams are around there. No, they might not have had big, good enough teeth for that, though. Clams are a little harder than some of the other stuff. Yeah. There was also a full-sized animatronic platiosaurus about 20 feet long in the Walking with Dinosaurs live show. Which was great. Yes. <laughs> and you can see a platiosaurus in the Royal Belgian Institute of Natural Sciences in the Dinosaur Gallery. And our fun fact is about Luis Alvarez of Alvarez Hypothesis fame. And he and his son Walter named the Alvarez Hypothesis. And that's basically the hypothesis that an asteroid hit the Yucatan Peninsula about 65 million years ago, now redefined as 66 million years ago, at the Chicxulub Impactor site, and that was the event that wiped out dinosaurs at the Cretaceous-Paleogene boundary. And they proposed that back in 1980. Interestingly, 35 years earlier, Luis Alvarez flew over Hiroshima and Nagasaki during the nuclear bombings as a scientific observer. Oh, I think that helped with their hypothesis i think it might have because there is kind of a lot in common in terms of mass extinctions right the destruction huge power and it's also interesting if you try to search about this information and you do like hiroshima chicxulub it always talks about how many hiroshima's worth of explosion happened at chicxulub because that's kind of like the common moniker now for explaining these huge explosive forces so yeah it's very interesting. I didn't realize there were any scientific observers that went along. It's kind of creepy and weird <laughs> that you would fly over such a horrible event like that to observe it. I guess it was a new thing, so they wanted to learn from it. But man, what a horrible scientific experiment. Yeah. And on that lovely note, <laughs> food for thought, that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. Also, check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino for rewards and to join our growing dinosaur community. Thanks again, and until next time. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.